The Beauty of a Busted Fruit by Natalie Diaz. When we were children, we traced our knees, shins, and elbows for the slightest hint of wound, searched them for any sad red-blue scab marking us both victim and survivor. All this before we knew that some wounds can't heal, before we knew the jagged scars of great-grandmother's amputated legs, the way a rock can split a man's head open to its red syrup like a watermelon, the way a brother can pick at his skin for snakes and spiders only he can see. Maybe you have grown out of yours. Maybe you no longer haul those wounds with you onto every bus through the side streets of a new town. Maybe you have never set them rocking in the lamplight on a nightstand beside a stranger's bed carrying your hurts like two cracked pomegranates because you haven't learned to see the beauty of a busted fruit, the bright stain it will leave on your lips, the way it will make people want to kiss you. Hello and welcome to Between Oceans of Gold Teeth. Ding. <laughs> I'm Joel Watson. Natalie Diaz did write this poem. You know, I think sometimes you should introduce yourself. You know, every <laughs> I, once in a while. I did last week. I know, but that's not... <laughs> that's like moral licensing. I'm Basie Cobine. Thank you. Great. Now Producer. I feel bad. <laughs> Producer. Editor. Curator. Poem selector. Yeah. Yeah. That's Joel Watson. Um, Part-time sound engineer, except when I get here first. And co-host. Hey, I... <laughs> I double check all of your work. You're like my um, uh, assistant sound engineer. Right. I think I should put in at the beginning that Natalie Diaz is a member of uh, the Mojave Indian tribe. Um, The book that this is from, When My Brother Was an Aztec, uh, deals a lot with her life and being um, a member of the Mojave tribe. And it's pretty cool. This poem doesn't have a ton to do with it. Except that it kind of connects back to, like, the rampant poverty in those communities. Mm. In some ways. Not in a lot of ways. Mostly in the middle stanza, but not quite. I don't know. It ties into her brother, the whole thing about the way a brother can pick at his skin for snakes and spiders, only he can see. Is he on drugs? Yeah, he has... I don't remember what to, but he has a struggle with addiction throughout the course of the book. So... Mojave Native Americans. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the specific. There is like this larger cultural trope that um, Native Americans have uh, struggles with um, alcohol addiction, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know about hard drugs. I think we live in a time where a lot of people are struggling with hard drugs. Um, That's you know, true. opioid crisis and whatnot. Crisis? What? What? <laughs> Dave Chappelle's newest, he's put out a bunch of, like, specials on Netflix in the last, like, year or year or two. Mm. Um, And the newest one has some interesting jokes about the opioid crisis. And he compares it to, he says that his reaction as a black person is what he imagines a white person's reaction was to, like, black people during the crack epidemic. (laughs) Crack epidemic? Oh, my God, I can't. Epidemic. Epidemic. I can say the word. Crack epidemic. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And I think, I mean, it's sort of like, that's too bad. I don't care too much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. I wonder, um, I guess like the biggest difference between those two things is one was um, a government shuffling the drugs and the other one is just a large corporation shuffling the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I, I don't know that much about either. 
bed from the top down. No, I don't know too much about that either, nor do I really know what it's like to live um, on a reservation, except that it is one of those places where the government was like, yep, we're going to put you here and not help you out at all. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not too much what the poem is about. It's just, I think, important background. I've been thinking a lot about new criticism and I've decided that it's uh, limited in its approach. New criticism emerged. Um, T.S. Eliot was a big member of the movement, and it basically says the text of a poem is all that is needed to understand it. And you look at like structure and meter, rhyme, word association, poetic devices, and stuff like that. And the background of the author really doesn't matter. Um, I've just been thinking about schools of criticism. I mean, like, to me, that sounds no. like a totally legitimate type of criticism, but it can't be, you know, you can't say, oh, it's what we should do. Yeah. It's like, yes, and there are other kinds that are good, too. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think it'd be, I think it's really cool to look at a poem and just be like, okay, what is here? Ignore the title, maybe. I think the Ignore title the counts. author. I mean, yeah, I guess it. Death of the author, yes, title included. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, like that's that's a really cool way of analyzing literature. Mm -hmm. However, another really cool way of analyzing literature is by, you know, understanding it based on its context and who wrote it and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like Animal Farm, if I didn't have an appendix, well, not an appendix, if I didn't have a parent next to me saying, hey, this is what this book is about. I would just be like, what the heck? This is weird. Kind of cool. I like it, but it's, you know, mm -hmm. I'd have no idea. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, let's actually talk about the poem. Um, I think it is great. Um, yeah? Well, I, so I, I, um, I really like the idea, the beauty of a busted fruit, right? Because... Um, things don't have to be like aesthetically and I, I don't even want to use this word, but aesthetically beautiful because I don't think beauty is the way most people use the word. So I think like the beauty of a busted fruit is potentially incredibly, incredibly redundant anyway. It's just the things that happen to us that make us stronger, whether they were whether we wanted to go through them or not, mm -hmm. um, those things fold themselves into our beauty. Um, and I think that it's really disappointing when you look at somebody who has scars for particular reasons. Um, and I mean that metaphorically as well as literally. Mm -hmm. And they just go, oh, they're less attractive. Yeah. Why? They've been through stuff. I think it's, yeah, I think it's great. I think that's interesting in relation to the idea that Diaz brings up in the third stanza, maybe you have grown out of yours. Maybe you no longer haul these wounds around with you. And the question of like, can you ever grow out of something like that? Or does it just change as you get older? You know, and it, I guess also the question is, did you, do you grow out of the hurts or do you go around, did you, gr do you grow out of like looking for them and identifying them and making note of them? Well, I wonder, um, <clears throat> I wonder if different people have different approaches, because um, I think I think that there are some people who go through stuff and they get older and they're like, oh, I didn't go through that. I'm I know. And then, you know, they teach their kids, you know, I 
never had a problem with this thing. And so I'm not going to talk to you about, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think some people do, quote unquote, grow out of uh, the things that they have gone through. Mm-hmm. And maybe they had to. There are plenty of things people go through that you have to just kind of put behind you. If, if the choice is between falling apart and um, moving forward and forgetting about it, mm-hmm. it might be a better choice to forget about it. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the implication of this third stanza is the, like, maybe you have grown out of yours is, like, that the speaker has not. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it also is to the speaker's advantage at the end. I think if if we can, if we assume that seeing beauty in the busted fruit um, and the way it will make people want to kiss you is a good thing, then maybe it's a bad thing that someone else has grown out of theirs and the speaker has not but i don't know yeah i mean it sounds like the speaker is talking about themselves they say maybe you have grown out of yours and then maybe you no longer hollow those wounds with you onto every bus through the side streets of a new town maybe you've never set them rocking in the lamplight on the nightstand beside a stranger's bed carrying your hurts Um, i think they're referring to the way that they see Mm -hmm. the wounds that they carry around with them Mm -hmm. i I think, at least as far as the speaker is concerned, it's a positive thing. I don't know. I I wonder. I wonder. Because I wonder, like, why is this a condition? I mean, I get, I get a lot of, like, consumption vibes from the end. Like, two cracked pomegranates, which pomegranate one is a red... F- fruit which good is good it ties back into the whole watermelon blood thing from the beginning Mm -hmm. um but it's also the fruit from the you know hades persephone myth and eating the pomegranate traps her in a condition she doesn't want to be in Mm -hmm. and i also wonder like why is this going to make people want to kiss you like what does that have to do and is it because it is an indicator that the speaker is a whole person both victim and survivor or is it because it's easier to get into something that's broken than it is to break something open yourself. <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, Well, I mean, there's a couple. I I have a way that I interpret this, um, but there's a couple ways I think you could interpret it. Um, the way it will make people want to kiss you. You know, like people like fixing things. There's this, I, I don't necessarily agree with this, although I understand that I fall into this myself. Um, you know, you look you look at somebody who's attractive, but they're maybe they're not like, you know, conventionally gorgeous. But, you know, you can see like a, a good personality in their face and they have pleasant features and they don't hate themselves terribly. But or too much. Um, but, you you know, you, you can see like pain and suffering and anguish like in their character. Like you said, they're a whole person. They don't hide half of themselves. Like whatever they are is there and it's a whole thing. And so there's this tendency to be like, oh my goodness, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you happy. Mm -hmm. You're going to find joy in me and our relationship, Mm -hmm. which I don't. I don't think that's a healthy dynamic. No, I don't think so either. (laughs) But it is something that I think people do. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done it before. Um, I've had people do it to me. Um, And it's. No, I don't think it's good, but it is a potential interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if you were to take two sides, I kind of said it, but if you were to take 
all good things and bad things and put them on different sides of the same coin. If you take that sort of like, you know, instead of fixing, you look at somebody and you see all the positives and negatives and you're like, oh, they are a complete person. They're not hiding stuff, you know, beneath the surface that I have to discover over the course of 10 years or whatever. Like, I can trust the way they present themselves to a certain extent because they're not trying to be as beautiful as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is also saying, like, because you haven't learned to see the beauty of a busted fruit, meaning that the fruit, whatever condition it's in, is beautiful, which makes it unashamed and attractive. And that, I think, is a good quality to have in people as well. You know? I don't know. No, I, I agree. I think, I you know, I think when people go through different stages of their life they find different things attractive you know like if if this is a terrible example but if you are aging right and your tastes don't age with you you become leonardo dicaprio who only dates 25 year olds and then he dumps them for a new 23 four year old which i'm not judging him i'm just saying that his romantic tastes are not aging with him and who knows why whatever not not part of this podcast you made it a part of the podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, it's none of my business. But when your tastes age with you, it's I don't think it's just like, oh, I'm older, I can't get any better. I think you hopefully start to understand a deeper thing and you see you see like more experience and life in the people who are also aging with you. Mm-hmm. Um, because hopefully you've all lived more than people who are younger. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. I don't know either. It is interesting to me that this poem starts with children. And I wonder if this is common behavior for children. Like, do you think this is like a universal experience? I ask partially because I've been trying to figure out if the we in the poem is like us the readers and the speaker or if they're talking maybe to somebody more specific and i haven't figured it out yet. like family members or something kind of because they do you know we knew the jagged scars of great-grandmother's amputated legs which implies it's their great-grandmother but then it's a brother which is like is that distance from the brother because he's not related to both of them or because it's us the reader i don't know um but i like i just wonder like Is that something that most kids do? I don't know. I feel like I do it more now that I'm an adult, actually. (laughs) Um, I will say I have always been fascinated by the wounds that I have curated over Mm -hmm. the years. Like, I remember busting my knee open on, you know, like when I made a bicycle ramp, which is very smart. When I fell out of a tree multiple times, like I, once the pain started subsiding, subsiding, I was like casually obsessed Mm -hmm. with either the scab or the scar or just like the bleeding in general. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a fascinating thing to be physically broken like that. Mm -hmm. Like you look at your body or and you're like a person. And then when you have a cut or a scrape, something is just like fundamentally wrong. And there's like more of you than you thought there was because you have blood inside you and you don't Like, I don't go around thinking about my bones, but if I cut myself open on something and I could see my bone, I would be like, oh, there is more to me. Mm -hmm. But I'm also very fragile. (laughs) Right. Fast. That's interesting because I 
don't think I was like that as a child and I was more like this sucks and I don't <laughs> want it anymore but I'm I don't know more interested I guess I don't know maybe because it happens less often maybe now that I'm an adult but like I think there's more interest in adult injuries because they're more unexpected perhaps I I'm becoming increasingly like cautious of injuries just casually because um when I was a kid and I fell over like no matter how much I was bleeding I was fine Mm -hmm. but as I get older if I fall over I hit the ground with like a thud which it's that kind of thud where you you just kind of everything stops the whole world stops and you're like I can't feel anything right now and if I've broken something I wouldn't know Right. Not for a few seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, But it feels like you totally could have. Well, that's what the middle stanza is about. You know, injuries that are worse than these little ones that we get as children. Yeah. Before we knew the jagged scars or the way a rock can split a man's head open. Because that's, you know, that's not that hard to do. No. Like skulls are great for stopping, you know, wiffle balls. (laughs) But... (laughs) But, I mean, they're very fragile. Mm-hmm. I do. I have always enjoyed the whole, like, watermelon as a human head <laughs> comparison because, like, it makes sense to me. I think I think it fits um, pretty well in what you see inside. Not that your brain is red, but there's a lot of blood up there. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a lot of blood up there. There's <laughs> a lot of blood. up. Well, there's a lot of blood pressure up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it has a place to go, there will be a lot of blood up there. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, there's not, it's not like in the brain cavity itself, but like blood, you know, oxygen transmission in your brain needs a lot of stuff all the time. Yeah. So it, it hangs out up there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot flowing through there at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you have a blackout, in which case there's less. Uh, I mean, it's just your hippocampus that stops working. Oh, I was thinking of, I was thinking, sorry, I was thinking of a G-force blackout. Oh. Um, Which is, there's two things that happen when you are experiencing G-forces. One is a red out, one is a blackout. Mm -hmm. And a blackout is when all the blood rushes out of your head and everything goes black. The other one is when all the blood rushes to your head and everything goes red. And then I guess it goes black. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Why do some people grow out of, like, okay, so if something happened to you, right, and you became a better, stronger person because of it, regardless of what it was, how, why would you grow out of that? I don't know. That's something I wrote was that, is this actually growing up or is it just a shift in perception? I don't right? know. Like, does... It, like because the speaker is still interacting with their injuries, does this mean they think they haven't grown up and their perception of grown-ups is that they stop interacting with their injuries? Or is really the sh- – I, I don't know. Is the I, shift that people are always going to be damaged? I don't know. I, I So it doesn't say grown up. It says grown out. Right. And I think that's incredibly important because that's much – much more vague like growing up is a good thing Mm -hmm. growing out of something is not necessarily good Mm -hmm. like there are people 
who have grown out of the idea of true love, you know, and I would say that I haven't. True love, quote unquote, to me has changed in what it means, Mm -hmm. but I haven't grown out of it. I don't like go through the life being like, oh, yeah, I'm never going to love anybody like Mm -hmm. I did when I was in high school. Like, I don't I think that's absurd. And I think you I, I think you won't experience like if you grow out of something that will be your reality and you will always tell yourself yeah i was right about that mm-hmm. i was right to do that because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah um so i think i think if you grow out of your scars and your wounds i i think you're leaving part of yourself behind for what though i don't know uh, not everything is good to hang on to the way it was when you encountered it true you know some things you do need to grow out and away from um and i think it depends on what it is because some people something bad will happen to them and it becomes the center of their personal narrative and they never really move any further away from it than they do like immediately after it happened and they get stuck in this pattern of reliving trauma and other people go exactly the opposite way and they're like this never happened to me <laughs> even though it did um so i th- i wonder if you know the compromise the beauty of the busted fruit is this thing happened but i have changed the way i look at it mm-hmm. i wonder if that's what is being gotten at and as far as growing out of things maybe some people can accomplish that without carrying it around with them you know to the bus to the new towns to the bedside oh but maybe not maybe it does have to come with you i think i mean i i get that um i i do kind of like the idea that somebody has um grown up and accepted things and they don't have to carry it around with them all the time you know they go into a store and they don't have to be like, you know, reminded of all the times that they, you know, had a partner in that particular store, like to use a terrible example. But I think the poem itself in the third stanza when it says, because you haven't learned to see the beauty of a busted fruit. Um, I think they're referring to the speakers referring to people who have grown up and out of things and forgotten about them. They've they've learned to not let these things hold them back, but they haven't learned to see the beauty in the scars that they leave behind. Maybe. I'm a little bit hung up on the end of the first stanza, like marking us both victim and survivor. And I keep wondering how much that plays into this person who emerges at the end, like the person who can see the beauty of a busted fruit and does leaving... You know, just growing out of something, leave one of those identities behind. There's there's this really interesting thing um, that happens. Like something bad will happen to you, right? And, you know, bad enough that there's uh, legal, uh, legal stuff and government involvement, whatever. Um, and you are a victim. That's who you are. Something bad happened to you. Somebody, you know, assaulted you. You're a victim, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and becoming a survivor kind of is a personal choice. 
And I think that there are times in this world where people have decided to become survivors in such a way that they have become calloused to other people who are victims of the same thing that they were. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of it in like, you know, toxic masculinity um, in the relationships that um, men have with older men and that sort of thing. Like, I mean, I didn't have this growing up. I had very good parents, but I know people who um, their parents were like, well, this is the way things were when I was your age. Mm -hmm. And so don't worry about it. It's fine. And it's like, well, no, we're trying to make a better world. Like, yes, we're trying to constantly shift things towards a better place to live. Um, so when you just say, you know, I got over it, so you should too. Like, I understand that attitude because you don't want to be weak to everything you encounter all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but but you need to allow for growth in the world and, and you can't just ignore things just because, you know, you're afraid of crying about them. I think you have to have. Or being hurt. Being hurt does suck, though. I cannot say... I, I kind of enjoy being hurt. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because now everybody's going to be like, oh, no, we can treat him terribly. <laughs> he likes it. No, I, I probably too much, but I definitely see beauty in busted fruit. I tend to mistrust fruit that isn't busted. I mean, I also, I don't know. I think that I've figured out a way to have a pretty like holistic approach to people maybe not sometimes not but mostly yeah and I'm getting better at like taking people where they are and appreciating what they have and what not what I think they should have or feeling that they are less because they don't match up to some imaginary picture <laughs> I'm getting better at not meeting people with imaginary pictures <laughs> and I also have a vague appreciation for like the state of minor physical injury but really have little tolerance for like emotional gobbledygook gobbledygook <laughs> yeah i don't like feeling bad very much all the wait you mean your own gobbledygook yeah oh okay like i don't i don't like to read stuff that ends badly i don't like so you don't like watching a movie that just like tears your soul into tiny little pieces and doesn't put it back together for you? No. But then you get to put it back together. I don't want that. I can't do it anyway. <laughs> um, I have to have some rebuilding capacity before I can willfully shred it apart. Like, I think, but it's great. I mean, I read a lot of poetry that when I'm done with it, I'm just like, oh, no, I'm not going to leave my house for the rest of the day. I'm just going to sit here with my face on the desk. But, okay. like, but I don't read too much of that. Because, like, it's a lot for mm -hmm. me. I'm just like, like, I don't know. It's not, it's not how I like to have fun. Okay. I mean, I do, <clears throat> I do kind of enjoy that kind of stuff. However, I was reading a book today um, and I had plenty of time this morning to read it and I was really enjoying it, but it was talking about some very harsh subjects and I found myself, like, reading I was reading at the same pace that I started reading at 
but I was comprehending things slower. Like mm -hmm. the, the emotional weight of what was coming at me was slowing down the way I processed it. And I kind of kept the pace because I kind of got a little bit numb to what I was reading. Was this Talking to Strangers? This was Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, I've been reading it too. Um, and I was doing, when I was reading, I was also reading it this morning. Um, when I was reading it, and I think we both wound up in the chapter about Brock Turmer mm -hmm. and Chanel Miller, who is the Emily Doe um, from the case. She released her name to the public recently. Oh. Um, and I found myself doing what I do when I read like emotionally charged poetry that makes me want to stay in my house and not talk to anybody, which I was just like, okay, I got to look at the ceiling for a minute and just like let everything sink in because like this is a lot going on. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't something that I could just um, read like Harry Potter for sure, which <laughs> I mean, this is, which is not what I expect when I pick up Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> I don't know. Some of his, like, Blink went really, well, Blink was easy to read. Mm -hmm. um, Outliers was easy to read. Yeah. This is, well, it, this he, is tough. He has the exact same writing style and everything. So mm -hmm. it's tricking my brain into, like, a lighthearted, you know, bounce across this literature um, where I will just effortlessly pick up information. And it's like... I don't know. It's like running through the mud. <laughs> a little bit. I don't know. I had the same sort of thing when I read pieces of the book that this came from, mm -hmm. uh, The Beauty of a Busted Fruit, which this was one of those when I was like, at the end, I was like, what does that mean? Like, what are all the implications of this? Because there are a lot and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Of the um, whole book? Well, this, I think, was one of the ones that I was just like, huh, <laughs> okay, all right after a couple of other poems like this, I'm going to just stare at the white space for a minute. <laughs> like, I will say there is something um, wonderful about poetry, like uh, movies, especially American movies, Hollywood films, um, literature, I think. People try to write in a moral. They try to craft it into something that is, like, good. Whereas a lot of poetry that I read, especially modern, like, emotionally charged poetry is just like, yeah. and you have to like, you have to engage with it on your own level. It's not like, you know, the moral of the story is, it's just there. Mm -hmm. So it could be saying things that are bad and wrong, not intentionally. It's just describing a feeling or a time or, you know, something specific or abstract. And you have to, you have to really, you know, feel your way through it. Yeah, I think Will Gibson is... I think Rupi Kaur does that for some people. Mm. Um, just, like, she is able to just take them through this, like, emotional process. Um, she doesn't really do that for me, but Will Gibson does. And, like, Will Gibson is someone who, like, is very straightforward in his writing and doesn't do a ton of embellishing. But, like, at the end of some of the stories, I'm just like, fuck, that was a lot to have happen to you. <laughs> And that was a lot to have happen to me, and it didn't even happen to me. Like, Oh, man. Mm -hmm. I guess he's a good poet, then. I think he is a good poet. Not everyone has to like him. No, I mean, you don't have to like... You know, people say Bukowski's a good poet, and nobody likes him. I think he is a good poet, but he's a pretty shitty person. You know, I wonder... Was the late Charles Bukowski. Ah, eh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't... You know, it's funny. I don't really 
enjoy, I mean, I've grown up to make references about whether people are alive or dead, but in my brain, the perfect way of talking about people is just present tense. That makes sense. Speaking of people, I we talked about this a little bit already, but I think it's fascinating how the two people in this poem grow apart. You know, at the beginning, we were children. They're doing this together. They're looking mm-hmm. for wounds together. And then they learn about these terrible injuries together, you know, amputated legs, heads cracked open, like someone picking at their skin, which is really, I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's done that, like. Like tweaker? Uh, that like hardcore. The whole like, there's something on my skin and you can't see it thing. I don't think so. I've seen people like not doing it, but like people who obviously like have been doing it recently. I've seen that. And I also, I read this book, The Thin Executioner by Darren Shan. Um, and I don't know, spoilers for this book that's been out for a long time. The main character, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a problematic book. It's got like a major fundamental race issue, I think, but like... <laughs> it's so casually thrown in there. Putting that aside, um, the main character, the two main characters get captured by this or is it is it both of them or is it just one i think it's just one the main character the protagonist who doesn't they have a redemption arc but it, they don't they probably don't deserve it no I don't um think so they get captured by this group of cannibalistic self-injurious people so there's like pages and pages of description of people just like neatly picking away at their exposed bone and i was just like Ugh, hate that Wow, I barely remember that. I've probably read it more recently than you have. Oh, okay. That's fair. Because, like, I read it when it came out, and then I read it... I've probably read it three times, actually. Because... It wasn't very good. Because I didn't remember... Because it was good enough that I... I don't know. I was big into Darren Chan, and I liked... It's interesting. It's got a lot of interesting worlds in it, even though I didn't... I'm glad I read it again because I realized it was fundamentally problematic <laughs> and ripping off Huckleberry Finn, but like whatever. Um, I, yeah, that, um, I mean, I guess when I read it, I, it was only a couple years ago and I was like, oh, this is interesting, but I don't think it earns anything that happens. Like, you know, they go to a place, they get attacked by these people, they get away or they don't get away. And I'm like, I don't. I don't see how anything is happening other than it's like when you're watching a movie like a Marvel film and stuff happens because the script says it happens and there's really no nothing else there. Yeah. It's just, oh, okay, we've changed from a walking story to an escape story. It was good for me as a it was good for me as like Darren Shan Redemption after he kills off the best character in Cirque du Freak and um did weird stuff with his like werewolf series whatever i'm not familiar with any of his other work that's fine you don't have to be this we should i we just went on a big darren chan tangent and we should go back to the poem yeah i don't think Mm -hmm. um what you were saying i actually find that interesting because you weren't sure quite who they were talking about Mm -hmm. but it says when we were children we traced our knees oh that's how we got um and then you're right. It says the way a brother can pick at a skin for snakes and spiders only you can see. So I'm wondering, I guess I have in my head that she's maybe talking to a sister, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is total headcanon, so I apologize. And maybe the sister grew up with her and just started ignoring and not talking about all the things that happened when as they were growing up. Um, I wonder if that's supported by the f- by the distancing of the brother by saying the way a brother. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I wonder if they're talking to a close family member. That's kind of what it feels like. But it also is a little bit at the end like they could be talking to anybody. You yeah, know, it's because just good it- poetry. That's true. Probably because it's it feels so much like they're talking about what they have done, not being grown out of this. You know, it's a very like a specific example to be tossing at somebody who you're accusing of growing out of it, you know, like. Yeah, you know, there's this. So all uh, all else being equal, (laughs) you have two people. Right. They both go through the same thing as a child. One of them locks it in a box and then joins society. Right. The other one wears it on their sleeve, becomes a poet that, you know, takes buses to tons of new towns, you know, spends spends time in strangers beds, carrying your hurts like two cracked pomegranates. Right. So you have these two people, same experience. They chose, well, whatever the word choose means. They chose to deal with that in different ways. Um, One of them is probably healthier, as it were, right? But less, I don't know, experienced and knowledgeable about life, maybe? I don't know. I'm fascinated by this idea for a bad example, Bukowski, who basically was like, I'm going to live a shitty hedonistic life and do whatever I want. I don't think he was very happy, though. Well, no, but (laughs) I'm not saying happiness, but he, to a large extent, chose to do what he wanted to do and so like he has this like you know rugged all kinds of shit happens in his life whether to him or around him and like he learned something from that which is why we read his poetry Um, maybe so I'm wondering about like you know like Van Gogh people eschew Van Gogh because you know he was terrible to himself and he wasn't very nice to other people but the hurt and the pain that you go through can teach you things. So like, is there a moral imperative not to be Van Gogh and destroy yourself, but is there a moral imperative to like, you know, be honest about the stuff that has happened to you? Like, is that the least you can do? I mean, probably honest with yourself. What about other people? I don't know. I don't know if other people need to have that, you know, I think it depends on, like, what you do with it. I mean, if you meet somebody who's just, like, an asshole and then you find out that they had a bad childhood, how much does that, like, counteract the fact that now that they're, like, a grown person who is still being an asshole? Like, I don't know. I mean, knowing what happened to them expands the context but it all it's also like you potentially had plenty of opportunity to like get some help with this or at least to do something so that you're not such a jerk all the time so this is not an completely equitable equitable um example because i don't 
I don't, I don't think I'm an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you grow up and, like, there are certain holes in your upbringing, mm-hmm. right? Just things you didn't learn, things you don't know. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, later than 18, I will say, but at a certain point, I started to realize that, like, you know, and I had known objectively, oh, you can't blame your parents for what's wrong with you once you're past a certain age, all that nonsense. I mean, some things. I, Everything's relative, right? Yeah. Um, so, but I started to realize, okay, I can't, I can't, you know, even just kind of like talking about it, like explaining, oh, hey, this is who I am and this is why I am. To a certain extent, it's like excuse giving. So the people that I talk about these things with, like that circle has gotten smaller and smaller mm-hmm. because they have to, they have to, that's a terrible way of saying it, but um these people need to be closer to me before I will reveal that because I don't, I don't want to, you know, you walk past, I, I see this a lot and I apologize for putting them in a box, but I walk past, you know, somebody who's homeless on the street and their problems are right there. They will tell me about everything that happened to them that day, that month, that, you know, year in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it pushes me away. I mean, I don't know if it's good or bad or whatever, but when somebody just like unloads all this crap, all this shit onto you, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot that you can do with it. And so it kind of just pushes you away from them as a person. Maybe. I mean, the other choice is to like fall apart and be like, oh my goodness, your wife kicked you out of the house six months ago and now you're living on Kirkwood? Let me give you all the money in my wallet. Like, what are you going to do? Well, sometimes people like that, they just want to be treated like they're a human being. I imagine it would get pretty old pretty quick to have people walk by you like you were the box you were sitting in. Um, And I think most people have an understanding that a lot of other people aren't necessarily in a position to help them out. It might not feel like that, but I've never had like, I've never had a panhandler get upset when I was like, no, sorry, I can't do anything for you. Like, I've never been in that position. I have been in positions where people have just come up and, like, told me stuff. <laughs> and my reaction is usually like, okay, you know, like, uh, I, I, I have no responsibility for it, so I don't really mind hearing about it. I, I don't terribly mind. I guess I have done that in the past when I'm upset and I'll just unload everything and the people in the room are like yeah fix your own problems dude like i can see it in their face oh as someone who um doesn't ever really do that what unload your problems not not too much occasionally Hmm. but not like every time i've been in a position where i feel like i'm starting to do that there always is at least one thing that i'm like nope this one's gonna stay down (laughs) (laughs) there's always something you can't tell the people around you or many somethings or many somethings or things you just don't want to but does that make you more appealing as a human being to have those things yeah i think the way we are socialized in america (laughs) that if you have all these hurts and they only make you a little less aesthetically beautiful you know so you're still in like the top you know 80th percentile or whatever 20th percentile however those numbers i can't remember how people say that (laughs) um 
right? You know, you're just a little rugged. Your hair's maybe died too long ago, and so the roots are growing in because you don't do it that often. Your tattoos are a little bit like, oh, this is definitely really personal, but kind of cheap because, like, it's not one of those Friday the 13th tattoos that they give out for, you know. You know, so those people look a little messy, right? But I think as long as they're not unloading all of that, if they keep it inside and you see the external manifestation of it, but they don't like talk about it and they're mysterious about it, I think they become incredibly attractive because I think that's what people in America are taught to look for is like. Are you saying that Americans are into like the strong silent type? I think they're into this like, you know, was hurt in the past and they're keeping it inside. Are we all because still strong? Is America still in its emo phase? Is that what you're? Oh yeah, using? totally. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, I'm me as an American. I was definitely socialized that way because of like the media I consumed and the friends that I decided to hang out with. But I think, I think a lot of, I see a lot of relationships in America, not emo people, where. They feel like they can't talk to their partner because if they open up to their partner, then, like, they're showing a weakness. And if they show a weakness to their partner, they're going to be less attractive. Like, when you go into the club, right, on the dance floor, you want to be confident. You want to have your shoulders back. You want to look like you have everything together because it's just a bunch of people trying to have the best time. I think the larger culture of America is, like, the club it's a bunch of people who don't want to admit that their life sucks because they want to just dance and have as much fun as possible and so they can't trust anyone around them because if you if you open up to somebody in the club you're not participating in that culture sorry tangent woo that's okay i talked about darren chan for a long time um do you think that this means that like the bright stain it will leave on your lips is um does it factor into that at all like does this idea that being damaged and then healed perhaps like leaves an actual effect on people and that people who have not ever been through anything also have a look but it's not that appealing yeah yeah like why do you think oh man um (laughs) this is total cliche and i apologize but why do you think if you're looking at two different men right you're looking at, you know, somebody like Sylvester Stallone or Harrison Ford, and I'm using, like, cliche masculine. I'm glad you brought up Harrison Ford because I don't know what Sylvester Stallone looks like. Great. He used to look a lot better than he does now. Um, So you have, like, that, you know, aging masculine archetype. Like, they're still kind of strong even though they're kind of flabby and their hair's, like, probably mostly gray. You know, like, they they just – But they look good because they look weathered. I remember Shia LaBeouf in the coming out of his biggest rehab stuff was like, I used to look at Robert Downey Jr. and think, um, oh, man, that guy looks so good and weathered. I want to look like that. Like he was lusting after the fact that Robert Downey Jr. had serious drug problems. But there is a certain like attractiveness to people who have gone through stuff now turn that around, and I'm going to use an easy target here, and look at the um, MAGA hat wearing, um, you know, white boys who are like freshmen in, freshmen in college, and they got their polos on, and they have like those puffy pink lips and blonde hair and like, you know, sort of squarish features, and like, 
They look like they're kind of built, like they've been drinking a lot of milk, and so they've had a lot of protein in their life, but they've also had a lot of milk, so they're kind of soft. Like, they're aesthetically attractive in, like, a traditional, like, what we find attractive way, but they're some of the most boring and just, like, blah. I think that would be the worst thing to look like is that. I don't really know where to go from there. Um, I don't know. I definitely think that the bright stain it will leave on your lips um, will make people want to kiss you. But I'm, again, I'm an emo kid. <laughs> yeah, I think some people are into more healthy stuff. Which is not to say, I don't know, I think it depends on the interpretation. Like, is this carrying stuff around healthy or not? You know, there is this interesting thing. It's like, okay, I look for healthy things. I want to look for a healthy partner, right? Because I want them to bring me up. I don't want to be broken anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's other people who look for broken partners because they're like, I want to help them help, excuse me, help bring them up. And the damaged scale of the person who is either looking up for help or looking down to help doesn't actually matter to the perspective that they search for those things. They could be anywhere on that scale and still be looking up or down. I think those both sound a little bit unhealthy. Like, and probably, probably. you want to get involved with someone who you feel like you're on equal footing with, not in all areas, but in general. I believe that is true. I like, don't know. No, I think you're right, because I think that's the point of having a partner is like you're trying to build a life. You're trying to do things together. The only thing is... I know people change and I do have this part of me that is like, how do you reconcile the fact that like people change and you might grow faster than them or vice versa without being like, oh, well, we'll just break up when we change. Because I don't like, I don't like the casual, that sort of like, oh, we'll just break up attitude. Because I think, I think sometimes you need to like fight for things or else they don't matter to you. I don't think the idea of a sense of equality with your partner necessarily leads to that mindset. Well, it's not a mindset. It's a fear. Or a fear. You mm. know, I don't know how anything works, but I think if you get involved with a person, I don't know. I don't think I don't think that is where that comes from. Hmm. I don't know. Me I don't either. know. I guess we should be done. Hello and welcome to the end of this week's episode of Between Oceans and Gold Teeth. The Beauty of a Busted Fruit, Natalie Diaz. When we were children, we traced our knees, shins, and elbows for the slightest hint of wound, searched them for any sad red-blue scab marking us both victim and survivor. All this before we knew that some wounds can't heal, before we knew the jagged scars of great-grandmother's amputated legs, the way a rock can split a man's head open to its red syrup like a watermelon, the way a brother can pick at his skin for snakes and spiders only he can see. Maybe you have grown out of yours. Maybe you no longer haul those wounds with you onto every bus through the side streets of a new town. Maybe you have never set them rocking in the lamplight on a nightstand beside a stranger's bed, carrying your hurts like two cracked pomegranates, because you haven't learned to see the beauty of a busted fruit, the stain it will leave on your lips, the way it will make people want to kiss you. <laughs>